and worship this morning. It's good to be back with you. I know you got to hear from Alan last week and what a joy and privilege it is to hear from some in our congregation um, at different times to hear the word of God preached. Oftentimes when I uh, hear it, I, I was with my family last weekend, but when I hear it online or, or in person, I think to myself, wow, the Lord is speaking through his church, the people of God, amen? Well, we are moving back into our series in Acts called The Power of God. Chapter one, if you remember, Jesus promises that the disciples of Christ will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The power and the presence of God then comes down upon the disciples at Pentecost. And the church is born with the spirit of God indwelling his people. And you remember and recall that they began speaking different languages represented throughout the world. Now the thought is that the spirit of God which lives inside of his people, the church is to go share the mighty works of God with all languages, all peoples throughout the world. And remember at the end of last time we were together in verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. They are drunk at speaking these languages. What is happening here as they begin to mock the mighty work and the presence of God? And what we'll see this morning is Peter rises up at this moment and begins to preach the first sermon. Yes, this is the same Peter in which 50 days earlier denied Christ, said, I do not know this man three times. And yet this same man gets up and preaches to thousands of people, 3,000 in fact, being saved. This morning we see the very first sermon of the church. And I'm preaching this passage for the purpose of seeing that spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel is what causes people to repent and believe upon Christ for salvation. Obviously, I'm passionate about this topic. I have devoted my life to preaching the gospel. But this text is important for all of us today as the church, because as the church, our call is to all proclaim the gospel. Being filled with the spirit of God inside of us to proclaim the truth of who Christ is and what he has done and calling people to repentance and faith 
in him. Do you see the filling of the Spirit, as we will see through the book of Acts, is always accompanied by gospel proclamation. And we see the Spirit-filled preaching of Peter this morning. So turn in with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14, but I'm not going to read all the way through 41 with you this morning. So if you'll stand in honor of reading God's word, we're going to begin in verse 36 as Peter summarizes the sermon for us in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a story. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we read this text of Scripture this morning, as we hear Peter, spirit-filled, and proclaim the gospel to these people. May our hearts be molded and shaped for the affections of you, Lord. May we understand the truths in scriptures. Father, may we cry out as a people and as a church that says, what shall we do? Because we stand in awe and majesty of her God. Lord, help your word pierce our hearts. Help the truth of the gospel begin a fire in our hearts, a passion in our hearts for you. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Speak to us through your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple years ago, um, when we used to have social gatherings in homes, you know, that's supposed to be a joke. It's, it's really not funny, is it? But a few years back, really, when we had social gatherings, I remember we had a birthday and we were gathering around food and fellowship. I can't remember whose birthday it was, but we were at my sister and brother-in-law's house. And they have some nice furniture. You know, the furniture that looks old, but is really new, it 
it's normally pretty expensive. I've, I've told you more than I know about furniture already, but I'm an expert at it. No, I'm not. But we were sitting down at their nice table, and their nice matching chairs. It, you, you, you can tell that they were expensive. And it's not really a good habit, but sometimes um, out of habit, I'm sitting in, in the chair and I, you know, you kind of lean back. I'm kind of tall, so my feet kind of tuck under the chair and it's real easy just to kind of stretch your legs a little bit and lean back in the chair on the two legs in the back. And I just so happened to do that at the time and I hear this loud crack. Quickly try to gather myself and but the damage has been done. <laughs> we look to inspect, and the chair is broken in half. And I look over at my wife. <laughs> and I think everyone has probably felt this before in some situation, but I just wanted to crawl under that table. And the first words of my mouth was, what can I do, right? And the hearers at Pentecost, they're cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? You see, the damage has been done. Humanity has not only been kicked out of the garden, but God's chosen people, Israel, have rejected his law throughout the scriptures. We see this time and time again. They have thrown themselves at idolatry and the worship of idols time and time again. And now God's own people have rejected the very Messiah in which God has sent to come and to save them, but they not only have rejected them, they have crucified him. I always think it's interesting that the gospel itself, gospel preaching, answers so many questions to life. Normally, there are two types of hearers in the audience. And the gospel speaks to both individuals. I've said this before, I've shared this before, but it's a good reminder. There, there are oftentimes those who say, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm not like those people. Just give me a fourth step process to follow and I'll do that and I'll, I'll make my life better. And the Gospel preaching should shred that mentality up like a paper going through a shredder as the realization that our sin is what placed Christ on the cross. And Peter shows us that in his sermon this morning. When Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified He's not talking about the crowd who was chanting Barabbas. Certainly there were some who were there, but not all. He's not talking about the Pharisees who had Jesus arrested, Judas who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Certainly there are some there 
who did that, but not all. He's not talking about Pilate who ordered the sign to go above Jesus on the cross that said king of the Jews and ultimately led to the crucifixion. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. Your sin placed Christ upon the cross. Your rebellion against the holy and righteous God caused the Lamb of God to be slain for sin. The proper response is the response of the people hearing the message, gospel preaching, is to fall on their knees, look to the cross in awe, and say, what can I do? And Peter tells us to repent place of your faith in Christ, realizing that the grace of God is the only reason you are called a child of the one true king. That's the first person whom gospel preaching affects. The second person is a person who's almost afraid to walk into a worship service. They understand the weight of their sin. It is too much for them to bear. They feel as they are completely unworthy to be associated with the name of Christ. They almost feel as they can never be forgiven. They are a broken person who feels they must go to the feet of Jesus and wash his feet with the tears from their eyes. And they look to the grace of God and Christ and call to him. And he says, come to me those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the person who looks upon the cross and says, what can I do? Both people look to the finished work of Christ upon the cross, and that's what gospel preaching does. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British pastor who preached in London in the 1950s, had a discussion on whether sermons should be practical and relevant or more doctrinal. 70 years later, we're still discussing that question. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said the way of framing that question, whether it should be relevant and practical or more doctrinal. He said, is wrong. The goal of a lecture is to leave with the full page of notes. The goal of a motivational speech is to leave with action steps. But the goal of a gospel sermon is to leave worshiping God. He said there should be a time when the pen goes down and the eyes go up. At some point we should stop saying, oh my, look at all these things I have to do for you, to oh my, look at what you have done for me. And that is when you see the people of God respond in worship. And they stand in awe of the presence of the Almighty God. 
This is when you see change happen in the lives of people. I can tell you five steps to being a good husband, but what makes a better husband is understanding and standing in the awe and the presence of the almighty God and the 10,000 steps Jesus took for me. Because standing in awe or growing deeper in the gospel changes our hearts. The gospel is not a resolution to do better. The gospel is the power to live. Faith in the finished work gives us the power to live in Christ as his church. The fire or the power to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in what has been done. That's what gospel proclamation happens. And that's when you see the church on mission for Christ. This is why gospel proclamation is important. Not only on Sunday morning, but to yourself. When you look at the scriptures in the morning and you open the word of God, do you proclaim the gospel to yourself? Do you proclaim the gospel to one another in your community group? Are you encouraging each other by the finished work of the cross of Christ and the grace of God? Do you encourage your spouse at the end of a long day with what Christ has done You see, we need to be soaked in the gospel so that our affections for God are stirred to such a level that all we can do is worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what Peter does here in the sermon at Pentecost. Sorry for such a long introduction. You can see I'm passionate about this subject. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice And address them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He says, people, it's the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. I know there are probably some that uh, drink at 9 a.m., but most of the time it's not people. So he's saying it's 9 a.m., we are not drunk, but this is what the Lord has promised through the prophet Joel, that the Spirit will be poured out upon all people and they will prophesy or they will speak the word of God to one another and to the ends of the earth. Listen to what he says as he quotes Joel in this In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit, verse 17, on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show you wonders in heavens above, signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's saying, look, this is the plan of God. 
God is now pouring out his spirit. He's explaining what is happening here at Pentecost for all believers to be empowered by the spirit to proclaim the gospel. The church has been given the mission and now has been given the ability for every believer to know God intimately and proclaim the message to the ends of the earth. Pretty good intro, I would say, explaining this is the plan of God from the word of God. Now that Peter has declared what God is doing, As he anchors it in the word of God, he declares who Jesus is. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is our first point this morning, which is this. Spirit-filled preaching glorifies Christ. Spirit-filled preaching glorifies Christ. This thought changed my preaching some years back. I began to really think about the goal of preaching. Is it to transfer information? Is it to entertain? I read a book called The Spirit-Empowered Preaching, Involving the Holy Spirit in Your Ministry. It's by Arturo Azurdia. And the premise of the book is that this, that any preaching ministry or any proclamation of the gospel, whether it's an individual, whether it's to your children, whether it's in a discipleship relationship, any preaching ministry that is effective for the kingdom requires a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. In the book, he points out John chapter 16, in which the spirit of the living God desires to glorify Christ. So in order to come alongside the Holy Spirit in preaching, there must be an exposition of scripture, right, written by the the spirit of the living God who inspired men to write the scriptures. God breathed scriptures exposition of the scripture, and glorification of Christ. Because that's the central message of the Bible. Listen to John chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Then he says in verse 14, listen carefully, he will glorify me. Who is he talking about? The Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. How does he do that? How does the Spirit of God glorify Christ? He tells 
the story, the message of the gospel. He empowers the church to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. Peter does the same here. When he begins to talk about Christ, beginning in verse 22, he talks about Christ as Lord. He talks about the power of Christ to overcome death through the resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to glorify Christ. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in the 1800s in London, tells a story about a young preacher preaching in the presence of an old minister. The young preacher said, what do you think of my sermon? You know how in, in seminary and when you're a young preacher, oftentimes you'll have people grade your sermon. You'll have people critique your sermon. The old minister says to the young minister who said, what do you think of my sermon? He said, a very poor sermon indeed. The young man confused asked, did you not like my explanations, my illustrations, my arguments? He said, yes, those were good. The young man said, well, why didn't you like the sermon? He said, Christ was not in the text. The young preacher said, Christ was not in that passage that I was preaching. I have to be faithful to the text. The old preacher said, young man, don't you know from every town and village and every little hamlet there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old preacher. And so from every text in scripture there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ, then preach a sermon running along that very road towards the great metropolis, which is Christ. And the old man said, I've never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it, and if I ever do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch but I will get at my master for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savior of Christ in it. Matt Chandler, one of the proponents for making Christ the center of God's story of redemption, says this, anything that misses Christ at the center of a sermon and his glory as the chief concern makes preaching man centered. And guess what? Gospel proclamation is not just for the unbeliever or for salvation, but it is essential for the growth of believers. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians and Christians mature. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians and Christians mature by trying harder to live according to biblical principles. 
He says, it is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing in the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. I have so much to consider here in this section, but our time is, 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 is going. But I do want to point out one more thing. <coughs> In verse 23, Peter emphasizes both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in salvation. Verse 23, let me read it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is the sovereignty of God. God is the one in control and allowing this Jesus to be delivered up according to his plan. And then he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. The responsibility, there is no escape from the responsibility of one's sin. It was God's plan for Jesus to give himself as a ransom for sinners. But those who crucified him are held accountable to their actions. Verse 36, we're gonna skip down. We got too much to do and we gotta get to 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? As I've said before, Peter's summary is in verse 36. The people are cut to the heart. But this is not a normal feeling of guilt. This is a conviction by the Spirit of God. This is our second point this morning. Spirit-filled preaching brings about a conviction of sin. I want, I want this passage to sink in a bit. So let's read it again. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus he's talking about, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the summary of Peter's message. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He is exalted at the right hand of God, sitting at the heavenly throne. There is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. This Jesus has poured out the Spirit upon his people. He is Lord, Yahweh, and Messiah. And you have crucified him. This is where the truth of the word of God, of who Christ is, convicts people to say, what should I do? You see, the, the Spirit's conviction 
is not a coercing people to pray a prayer or clean their life up or to be a good husband. The Spirit's conviction glorifies Christ. Just as Isaiah said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Basically, I am a sinner in the presence of a mighty and holy God. And the only answer is Jesus. To place my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. Jesus tells us what the Spirit will do when he sends the Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus speaking about returning to the throne in heaven. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. This conviction of sin is caused by the spirit of the living God through the word of God which glorifies Christ. Conviction that you have missed the mark that you need the righteousness of Christ and that there will be a judgment for those who do not repent and believe upon Christ. Conviction of sin is not something to be trifled with. When the power and the presence of God comes upon people, they feel the conviction of sin. During the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on July 8th, 1741 in Connecticut. He entitled the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now the first great awakening, if you're not familiar, is when the power and the presence of God came in a mighty way. Hundreds, thousands of people saved. Jonathan Edwards preaches this sermon. He expounds the reality of hell. And he talks about that a just and holy God is justified in sending sinners into hell. And during the sermon, Edwards is interrupted many times during the sermon by people moaning and crying out, what shall I do to be saved? And if you think of that, that is exactly what is going on at Pentecost. The conviction of the Spirit is so heavy upon the people that they are crying out, what must I do? Now only the Spirit of the living God can convict people of sin 
no matter how hard I preach, only through the manifestation of the presence of God through his word can anyone truly cut to the heart and recognize their own sin. But the holiness of God and the wrath of God poured out upon Christ during the crucifixion, meaning understanding the way in which Christ died, he was humiliated in our place, should bring us to conviction of the smallest of sins in our own life. Because our sin nailed him to the cross. One of the tricks of the enemy is to lull God's people to sleep, to say their sin is minuscule. Their sin is not that bad. And yet when you understand sin in the biblical and the gospel sense, you understand that your sin, no matter how small or minuscule it is, nailed Christ to the cross. And the realization of the grace of God in Christ Jesus allows you to live a life worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the church, to live in community with one another, to be on mission and to proclaim the gospel. We are not lulled asleep when we hear the word of God and we preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to one another. May we continue to do that. Verse 38, almost done. And Peter said to them, repent. This is the response of Peter to them saying, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are fall off, everyone from whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and those and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is our last point this morning, which is thus. Spirit-filled preaching brings about a response. Spirit-filled preaching brings about a response. Peter's response to their question is to repent. This is the word Jesus uses in his preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent means to change your mind. This is what the gospel does. It causes one to change their thought process. It causes them to change their mind from I can do whatever I please, I am my own God, I live for my own desires, to there is a God and I must submit 
to his authority in my life. And the sign that you have repented and placed your faith in Christ is baptism. Literally immersed in water. A public declaration of one's faith in Christ. Now, <coughs> some people are confused at this passage. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We interpret scripture with scripture. And the scripture is clear. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works so that no man can boast. Not by any works, including the work of baptism. So any interpretation which comes to the conclusion that baptism or any other act is necessary for salvation is a faulty interpretation. So why do some come to the conclusion from this passage? Well, it's that pesky word in the Greek and the English, for. If you took this passage, baptize, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of the Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're talking about. The word for can be used in order to get. So, it can be used as so, repent and be baptized in order to get the forgiveness of sins. But the scripture does not tell us that. Peter actually preaches two more sermons in chapter three and chapter four, and no word of baptism is used there for salvation. So what does that word for mean? The word can also be because of or as a result of in the Greek and in the English. So repent and be baptized as a result of the forgiveness of sins or because of the forgiveness of sins. Just like you would say, take two aspirin for your headache you're not saying the aspirin gives you a headache, but because of your headache. So we would say be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, I had to, had to explain that a little bit. And I have to explain one more thing. Verse 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, Peter explains to the people at Pentecost what they are to do, repent. And after their conversion, they are to display 
their faith in Christ through baptism. And he also says what God is doing in conversion in verse 39, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The human and the divine sides of conversion. And as a result of the work of God and the life of gospel proclamation, you have 3,000 people saved. The beginnings of the church, the beginnings of the people of God on mission for his glory. This is exciting to read. We should see the work of God and be encouraged in our hearts and our minds that God wants to do a work in and through you. Just as the early church, and we're about to see in 42 through 40. Seven in a few weeks, we'll see the community of believers expressing the gospel lived out in their life with one another. In community, in Christ-centered community, and this is a very beautiful thing. But what I want you to understand this morning is this. Gospel proclamation is not just for Peter. It's not just for the preacher. Last week it was Alan, this week it was me. Next week, Mauricio's coming. But it's for the people of God, the church, to proclaim the gospel to their children in their home to proclaim the gospel to their spouse, to proclaim the gospel in their community group, to proclaim the gospel to their coworkers, to proclaim this gospel to a lost and dying world. This is what the church is about. This is what the spirit of the living God empowers you to do, to proclaim the truth of the gospel. I hope we're encouraged to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you that you have given us everything we need to be witnesses of the kingdom, to glorify Christ in word and in deed, to live our lives for the glory of God. Father, we know that there is conviction of the Holy Spirit upon some. We pray that the gospel would speak to them, that it would change their mind, that they may have a new heart, a regenerate heart only by the work of God to accomplish the will of God in their life.
pray for our people in the church to set aside and to lay down their thought process that they can do it alone outside of the Spirit's work. They need people to speak the truth of the Word of God into their own heart and own mind. They need the Spirit to fill them to speak the truth to them. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have done in Acts, what you are doing in Oklahoma City. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.